0: Uh, let's, let's start it up first with some prayer. Uh, Father God, we come to you today. We want to thank you for this wonderful time that we have to worship you, Lord, and grow in the knowledge of you. Uh, I want to ask that you uh, use me to uh, accurately and rightly handle your word, Lord God. I want to ask that you bless this teaching of the word to uh, to your people, Lord. I want to thank you and praise you and uh, give you all the glory. Amen. All right, so uh, I'm just going to assume that everybody did their homework and read. <laughs> is that all right? <laughs> um, so, with, we're going to start with Luke 17. Um, and in the context of Luke 17 and 18, which is what we were supposed to read, um, it's in the context of Jesus speaking to the disciples and also the Pharisees. So you can see there's a. It's, Luke 17 and 18 are kind of, I say, they're meteor chapters of the book of Luke because you have multiple discussions and then multiple parables. Right? And then within those multiple parables. I don't want to say there's multiple meanings because I'm not the kind of guy that's like, oh, well, there's multiple meanings to every scripture and you can draw whatever you want out of it. No, not really. Um, I'm going to say that there's there's a lot of practical application, a lot of application that you can draw out of those parables. All right. So, quick overview of uh, Luke 17, verses 1 through 4. Jesus is encouraging the disciples to pray for their faith to increase. Uh, verses 5, verses 6, he's teaching them humility in whatever they do for God. Verses 7 through 10, uh, he's cleansing the ten lepers, of whom only one, a Samaritan, comes back to thank him. Uh, and verses 11 through 19 is a Discourse of the Pharisees about the kingdom of God. Um, just starting with verse 1. Um, well, yeah, it's kind of just starting with verse 1. There's a lot of... Uh, There's a lot of meaning that can be drawn out of these verses. Uh, The Greek word here, when it says, uh, yeah, the Greek word here, uh, let me read it. Start out with reading first. That would probably help, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Now, the Greek word there for uh, temptations uh, kind of brings to mind like, uh, like a trap. Or if you look at it, um, if, you ever, if you ever look at a mouse trap, when you put that piece of cheese or peanut butter on that mouse trap, you know, that, when that mouse hits that spring and that big steel bar comes and slams down on it, that big steel bar is what this kind of, is what this is referring to. It's that bait stick, you know, or if you ever watched Bugs Bunny cartoons when they uh, put the box up and they have that little stick that you're supposed to kick out once somebody crawls out under it. That's what that brings to mind. And uh, if you, uh, I think it's in First, yeah, First Corinthians 123, um, It's the same thing. It's also translated stumbling block. So when it says that you know Jesus is the stumbling block that you know unbelievers and Jews and you know everybody stumbles over, well you can think of that Jesus is that you know that bait stick that people you know stumble over or get snapped down on <laughs> um, so I, I kind of I'm, I'm kind of used to, going to do this in a, like a conversational sort of lecture I kind of like that um, so I'm going to you know open it up to the floor like what are some examples of you know stumbling blocks you know here that you can think of that you know could tempt other people to sin or you know things like that <laughs> to read it. It says, uh, <clears throat> "Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come." What kind of what kind of meaning can you draw out of that? Right, I can think of you know, certain things. Um, Christ pronounces a serious judgment on those who tempt others to sin. Well. Um, he says it would be better for them to be thrown into into the ocean with a millstone around their neck. Well, one of those things could be, say for example, you know, false teachers, right? Oh, Oh, goodness. I broke it. Um, Alright, I'll have to lean like that. False teachers, right? Deliberately leading people astray. yeah. Believe in certain false doctrines, yeah, can be a sin. Depending on what, you know. I'm not going to say, you know, third order doctrines, like if you don't homeschool your children, you're sinning. But, like, you know, things like believing wrong ideas about the Trinity, you know. Um, there was something that uh, a state of theology survey that Ligonier Ministry puts out um, says that something like 70 some odd percent of practicing evangelicals today would be condemned at the Council of Nicaea as Arians. Because, they, you know, one of the questions is that they ask is, uh, is Jesus the first created being? Whoa, well, no, he's not. He's always been eternal. And 70% of evangelicals answered yes to that. <laughs> so, I'm not going to say that, you know, they're all, you know, I'm not going to go so far as to say that they're all excluded, but you know, I'm going to say that, you know, certain people who knowingly propagate those doctrines like I mean, um, when I was in uh, when I was in college, sorry, high school. <laughs> when I was in college. I used to uh, know a very very nice Jehovah's Witness couple. They would always come on Thursdays at precisely two o'clock and they would stand right there in the library in the, in the quad in front of the library from two o'clock till four o'clock, every Thursday. And I got to know them, I got to talk to them. They're great people, wonderful people. But when I got to tell you, know, hey you know, let's have a Bible study or something like that. Uh, sure, why not? And the moment we broached the subject of the Trinity, I could under- I, I could tell, I explained he you know, explained it accurately, he understood the doctrine, the a historic doctrine, he understood the Council of Nicaea, you know, except with that few, you know, that uh, that conspiracy theory where the Council of Nicaea made every Christian doctrine that we have today, you know. <laughs> but understood the Athanasian Creed, understood, you know, the substance, you know, the Wiza and the hypostasis distinction, understood all that. And consciously rejected the idea that Jesus Christ was eternal. Understood it, consciously rejected. It. Guys like that, and unfortunately, guys like that, who uh, know the truth, consciously reject it, and decide to continue to teach errors to (coughs) others, those are the ones that we can say that Jesus is talking about here. When they say that it would be better for them to have a millstone wrapped around the neck and then to be tossed into the sea. It's also another application where you see... um, Jesus, when he's talking to uh, you know he's talking to the scribes and Pharisees, he's like, whoa, scribes and Pharisees, they'll travel over many, you know, travel many miles to make you convert, right? But you make them twice as the, you know, twice the son of hell that you are. So that's one thing, right? Or we can also say people that you know entice others to sin, you know, cr- you know people who might claim Christ and say that, oh, well, it's okay to commit X sin, or it's okay to do why thing because the Bible doesn't really say because reasons. Well, encouraging the sin that way. So Christ says it would also be better for those people to be have a millstone to be cast into the sea. That's like, that's like just really, just ponder that for a moment. It would be better for them to be cast into the sea than for the judgment that Christ is going to lay on them. Just, just like ponder that for a moment. I mean, drowning's pretty terrible. Like, I mean from all intents and purposes. I've, I've never drowned before. So, you know. <laughs> but drowning would be preferable to the judgment, as terrible as that is, it would be preferable to the judgment that Christ is going to lay on those people. And so that should, one, that should motivate us to, you know, really, really understand what we believe and really tell others the truth about it, to include, you know, that's why, you know, Christ, that's why it's a uh, scripture to say, to, you know, contend for the faith. To tell others about it. It's, uh, you know, it's a really, really big deal. And you can draw it out from here, too. Christ, you know, just in the seriousness of Christ's words here. Um, and then it seems like current, there's kind of like a next thing that jumps on that's like kind of attached to it, though, where Christ talks about forgiveness, right? Um, he says... Uh, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and turns to you seven times, saying, "I repent," you must forgive him. Think about that. So, I mean, what's, you know, it's also kind of a, a kind of another statement of the seventy times seven principle, right? I mean. It's not exactly saying to forgive somebody 490 times you know that's kind of <laughs> there's no strict cutoff at 400 oh oh 491 you're done <laughs> you No, know? no um it's kind of a what Jesus is saying here is that the obligation to forgive our brothers especially you know um uh, our brothers in Christ that come to us you know in the church or fellowship things like that uh love covers over a multitude of sins is the common thing that's said um but the obligation to forgive you know, other people to you know, but more centrally focused here what I'm trying to talk about is our brothers in Christ. The obligation to forgive that is because of great debt that's been forgiven us. Right? Kind of like the uh, kind of like that uh, that wicked servant. Are we gonna, you know, go ahead and you know, what's something that's been greatly forgiven us? We're gonna go you! You know, I, you offended me because you didn't compliment my pink Car today, or something like that, or you know, or you offended me by you know, X, Y, or Z reason. Are we going to hold grudges against that, or are we going to, you know, again, hey, you, know, you might have done this, or hey, you're doing this and that's wrong? Um, we're going to lovingly, lovingly sharpen each other as iron sharpens iron. Um, but the main point that I want to cover for chapter for chapter 17 is. Uh, Kind of the one that I spent the most time on here. The one that I thought would be... is kind of really... Really central here. Um, So... It's right here. Alright. Verse 7. Talk about unworthy servants. Will any one of you who has a servant, plowing or keeping sheep, say to him when he has come from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me, and dress properly And serve me While I eat and drink And afterward You will eat and drink Does he thank the servant Because he did What was commanded So also you When you have done All that you were commanded Say we are unworthy servants And we have done Only that which is our duty Now I, uh, I read some St. Augustine about this How do you say it Augustine, Augustine I don't know How this matter no. Say it with confidence <laughs> Augustine, there we go. Um, and in his commentary on this passage, he said, those therefore have low thoughts of the law's perfection who have such high thoughts of their own graces. And think about that. Um, Calvin also says, I think Calvin captures this really great when he says that, uh, essentially what he says is that God owes us really nothing. Um, the services that we are we required to render him perfect obedience to the law is really our duty. Um, so really God has no need of us but we have need of God because we can't even attain what we're supposed to do our our duty that we're obligated to give God which is perfect obedience to the law (coughs) and if we can't do that well then we're lost utterly Um, even if we could uphold the law of God ourselves um, we would only do what we're supposed to do and it wouldn't come even close to justifying us at all we're still unworthy servants. We're still worthy of, you know, being cast out of the Master's house. Hey, you're fired, you know. Um, that's, I mean, that's That's like the beauty of the Gospel, though, that Christ has fulfilled the basic duties that we were supposed to do and imputes that to us. Hey, you guys have done what you were supposed to do now through Christ and through abiding in Christ and loving Him and... We don't follow the law of God because, you know, oh, well, hey, it will earn me brownie points and I might be saved somehow, some way. Or, you know, we don't do, you know, like the Roman Catholics do where they're like, oh, well, hey, um, I've been infused grace. And these extra things that I do on top of that, you know, praying a novena on Saturday and not eating meat on Friday or something like that gives me extra brownie points too, you know, so... When I die, i you know go to purgatory instead of you know, instantly be in the presence of the Lord. I might get a few years knocked out from purgatory. It's more of a we do these we follow the law of God because a great debt has been forgiven us, and because of that we we knowingly continue in our duties and you know, we knowingly continue in the law of God because we love God and because we desire to please Him and be good servants for Him and be profitable servants for Him. Um, and it kind of goes into... Uh, it's kind of linked into uh, this, the next passage where it talks about the uh, the lepers. Um, ten of them. One of the Samaritans who Christ heals, right? And uh, yeah, it says, On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria, uh, Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and praised God with a loud voice and said, and fell on his face at Jesus' feet and said, and gave him thanks, said, uh, Now he was a Samaritan, or gave him thanks, saying, Gave him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan, and Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return to give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way, your faith has made you well. Now, one, you know, if you, if you read Leviticus 14.2, you know, leprosy is, this, you know, gross, disgusting disease. You know, your fingers are falling off. You've got open sores and boils. And kind of imagine that. These people were ritually unclean and pushed to the margins of society. Like, hey, you're supposed to stay X amount of distance away from us. You're supposed to stay X amount of different distance away from the temple. Um, you're supposed to follow this, do this. And they came, you know, they came as close as they dared to Christ and said, hey... Have mercy on us, forgive us, heal us, right? And it kind of shows that, you know, after Christ tells them, hey, go show yourself to the priest, one, it implies that, you know, um, Christ is essentially you know, has authority over the law. He's telling them that essentially that they're clean, right? He says, hey, go ahead and show yourself to the priest. You're clean. Um, but just imagine that simple trust that Christ says, hey, you're clean, go show yourself to the priest. That simple trust in what Christ has said that they're clean. Um, it's also kind of another picture of the gospel that we can think of. Uh, yeah, essentially, Christ saying, "Hey, you're clean under the law." Under the law, of, you know, under the law of Moses, under the law of God. Um, what does that mean for us in the gospel, too?
1: What
0: does that mean for you know? Christ has made us clean. Christ has washed our stains away. So, I mean. But only the Samaritan though comes back and thanks Jesus for it, and thanks Jesus for his healing. But now I mean, it can kind of be argued, like, did he go and show himself? I mean, that doesn't say, but does he go and show himself to the priest and then come back, or does he realize he's clean, turns around, you know, part way, and, you know, comes back and thanks Christ first? Um, I mean, that's kind of a—it's kind of either here or there, but I thought something that might be interesting to think about, but think about this, though. How many times do we, I mean, do we as the elect people of God, do we, when we've been praying for a blessing, or we've been asking God to do something for us, or just really just in the situation that we are, like, how many times do we simply just wake up and just kind of assume, oh, well, I'm under Christ today, you know, we don't really stop and really ponder that and think about that. I mean, when's the last time that you've woken up and been like, wow, thanks. God for giving me the blessing of another breath today. Like, really, you know, thanks God for blessing me with whatever you've given me, you know? I mean, I find oftentimes, you know, I don't know about anybody else, I'm not trying to apply it to anybody else, but oftentimes I think about it and I'm like, wow, man, I totally prayed for that and I totally didn't thank God for it. Or, man, I was blessed this way, that was really on my mind and the situation resolved and I just kept going on and keeping on.
1: Well, you know they
0: are how many times do we just kind of for this ungratefulness or so this you know this our prosperity makes us you know forget God's blessings to us. You know, we just go on our way. Yeah.
2: I think along those lines of you know, I've I've heard this verse before and thought about oh I need to be thankful for the things that God's answered in prayer but with what you were saying about you know that he had the power to cleanse mm-hmm. of going, how often do we thank him for just our salvation yeah. in general? I mean that in particular yeah. is something that you don't think of. You think of more of the answers to prayer but Yeah.
0: That. Definitely. Definitely. I mean, I know that's also something to watch for. Like, oftentimes we hear the gospel and we're like, oh, yep, there we go, the gospel again. You know, like, <laughs> it's kind of like a cliche, like, you know, people saying, you know, oh, well, you know, you hear the gospel or you think about Easter and Christ dying, res- you know, dying and resurrecting for us. You know, we're like, oh, you know, how many times we just take that for granted? And it's like, oh, yep, Easter again, you know. instead of so seriously pondering, you know, the cost that it costs, you know, this great debt that was paid by, you know, such a great cost and what was done for us you know? Serious, you know it's a serious serious thing to think about um now here's where we get to the fun part right um when we're talking about the kingdom of God with the Pharisees um being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come he answered them the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed nor will they say um nor will they say look here it is or there for behold the kingdom of God is in the midst of you now here's the, uh, this is the fun part um <laughs> so this is kind of where a lot of things go kind of kind of screwy Some people have uh, some weird ideas about this passage Well, um, Especially this whole passage When it talks about, you know, for us lightning flashes And uh, the sky, from, lightning flashes from the sky From one side to the other So the other son of man will come in his day And then later on it says uh, It says uh, one who is uh, You know, there will be somebody planting And, you know, somebody grinding at the mill one will be taken, and that kind of thing. A lot of people think uh, that's kind of commonly used in support of, like, you know, preacher rapture, and that kind of stuff, right? Um, I mean, I don't know. What are some other ways people can think of that this has been misused? Um, I don't know. Yeah. It's really kind of the only thing that I was thinking of. Um, Maybe it's just me growing up in kind of a quasi-Baptist, dispensationalist thing. I can, you know, that, this, this, this section was kind of commonly used to talk about, well, uh, at the end of time, Jesus Christ is going to come back after these dispensations and the pre-tributal rapture, one person's going to be taken, another person's going to be there still, and you know that's kind of how it was used to support that. Um, I'm going to save the rest of that kind of stuff, though, for if we ever have a Sunday school on eschatology, but <laughs> I don't want to step on anybody's toes there. Um, basically, the main point about this is... Uh, kind of begs the question, though. Those kind of things. It's uh, what is the kingdom of God that, that he's talking about?
1: Anybody got
0: an answer? With what, what's the kingdom of God that he's talking about? All right. So, um, main things about the kingdom of God. One is it's an absolute monarchy, right? It's not a democracy. It's not a constitutional republic. It's uh, it's not a constitutional monarchy. It's an absolute monarchy. The word of God is law, right? Um, and the New Testament here, you know, kind of indicates in the New Testament that uh, there's a the New Testament indicates there's an already and a not yet of God's kingdom. So there's a, there's a, there's a little bit of inauguration, and there's also a not yet that's still to come. Um, and you think about it here, he says that you know there's people who are going to be saying, oh hey, here's the kingdom of God, or hey, there's the kingdom of God, right? Or no, it's over there, right? Um, he says that there's many false. There's, you know, Christ does tell us there's many false messiahs that are coming. They're going to say, "Hey, I'm here to usher in. The, I'm here to usher in the final revelation of God, right? I'm here to usher in the final. You know, I'm here to usher in that not yet, right? And uh, I don't know. I was reading something the other day. Um, i was actually listening to a podcast. Sorry. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of Jeff Durbin or Apology or Radio, but they've uh, they put out a podcast in their church, and uh, one of theirs. They have what's, this thing called Cult Watch. You know, it's kind of a every son, every. I think every Thursday, it's kind of gotten off track now, but every Thursday they talk about a cult. Um, they've talked about Jim Jones. Um, they've talked about, uh, I don't know, it's called uh, Iglesia Ni Cristo. Um, they talk about all these cults whose leaders, you know, Mormonism, they've come kind of up all these leaders, for example, like Jim Jones, who said, hey, I'm here to finally usher in the, uh, the not yet of Jesus' kingdom. I'm just going to be a utopia on earth. All you got to do is uh, give up all your property and move to this place in Jonestown. Called Jodstown in South America, we all saw how that worked out, right? Unfortunately. Um, or there's also uh, this new cult in the Philippines, right? This man literally claims that he's Jesus Christ, and he says, "Hey, I'm Jesus. Um, give all your wealth to me. Live in this compound. Do everything I say, right? And in doing so, though, there's you know there's pl- there's he's ripped families apart. He says. Uh, He's stolen from people. He lives lavishly, drives a BMW in, in the Philippines, right? While his people barely eke out a living on rice and beans, right? Uh, I mean, I don't, I don't think that's...
2: Well, no, on. I am just going to say, it. I think it's important to remember what he says in verse 20. He said, being asked by the Pharisees uh, when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in the way that can be observed. And I think that's really... yeah. She to understand that the rule of god is over the hearts of his people so it, you know it does manifest itself you know physically in our or in a way in our lives and yeah. so that that can be seen in that way but it's not like a kingdom like there's the throne and here's the court and things like that so anytime anybody says any of these things about what's well, here it's there or i'm this person you know, that just lets us know that that's not true. Exactly. You know, so I think understanding the character of that kingdom really helps a lot. Exactly.
0: You know, but it's, also, it's also kind of funny, though. He says, you know, if you're also kind of thinking about that, the kingdom of God is amidst you, right? Well, that would be kind of like, hey, the king is right there, standing right next to you, and nobody really knows, right? That's also kind of interesting, too. But the Pharisees were so blind that they couldn't see that, you know, king of all the universe was literally standing right there and they were talking so that's I like that, that's also where I was going with that too but um, what's also really cool though too is that Jesus says that you know kind of later on that the, his, the not yet of his kingdom you know that that's not yet already you know, he's not already ruling over and ruling and reigning over the universe presently and over the hearts of his people that not yet he says it's gonna, that, that part of the coming is going to be so public that everybody's going to witness it. There's not going to be, you know, well, hey, I didn't know because, oh man, I just completely forgot, sorry. Every single person is going to know. And the thing is, is that it's not even, not even proximity to a person who is you know, part of his people. Not even close proximity to them. Hey, my dad's a Christian. That means I'm cool too, right? There's going to be none of that. It's going to be either you're saved and part of God's people or you're not. And it's going to come so quickly that there's not going to be any time for last minute repentance. There's not going to be like, oh man, oh man, Jesus is coming in five minutes. Um, I better repent. No, it's going to come out, it's going to be sudden, it's going to be quick, and it's going to be public. There's going to be no time for people to say, oh, hey man, uh, I should probably repent now. It's going to be no time. And I think that's why it's really important for us, you know, especially if we uh, you know, we talk to people who claim to be Christians or even ourselves, it's it's, you know, make your calling and election sure. It's not saying, you know, oh, hey, make sure you do these good things. No, it's, you know, make sure you're in the faith. Make sure you're really, you know, chewing over everything. Um, All righty, we get back into Luke 18. Kind of quick overview here. Um, Luke 18, the parable of the persistent widow, right? Um, this kind of harkens back to Jesus' discussion of the kingdom in uh, 1722-37. Um, why do you think the widow would continually nag and beg that judge for justice? I mean, what does it say about wickedness in places of judgment? Um, I mean, if unrighteous, you know, The unrighteous judge definitely does finally give in to the widow and says, Man, she's bugging me so much. Might as well give her justice. Right, but when you think about it, one a widow back in, G- in Jesus' time had literally almost no power, um, really no recourse, um, unless she had another male heir to speak on her behalf, or she had you know, was married again. There's literally nothing she could do. She was literally at the mercy of this judge to do what to do whatever he wanted to do, whatever he said, and. Uh, I mean, eventually she wearied him out with constant nagging, hey, do we do the right thing by me. Hey, I know I'm powerless, but do the right thing. Hey, constantly, constantly, constantly. And I think it's pretty interesting. If even, if even an evil judge who fears God not, as the KJB puts it, <laughs> um, if an unrighteous judge will do what's right, of course, after being pounded a billion times, um, what do you think, I mean, what do you think? Do you think God is eager to vindicate His elect, those who He loves and is cared for, and from the foundation of the earth? How much, how much more eager is He to answer the call of His people? And now, of course, it's not you know going to be like, "Hey God, can you do this for me?" And pow, it happens. It's sometimes you know more or less God's timing and not ours, which sometimes seems like an eternity, right? Or doesn't happen at all. Um, that's pretty. Uh, if you go to verse eighteen eight. Um, if you go to verse 18, eight, and it says, uh, it says, first off, you know, he says, I'll give justice to them speedily. And it says, those who cry to him day and night. Sorry, I'll go I'll go, uh, first back before that. Um, will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Um, I mean, does anybody think that there won't be any believers on earth? No, there's going to be believers on earth. Um, Now, the question here, though, is that, uh, you know, I like the way the notes put it here. Um, First off, in 18.8, speedily, of course, that's in God's time, according to 2 Peter 3.8, right? Um, But in my opinion, this is just me, when it says, you know, will the Son of Man find faith on earth, it doesn't mean that there's not going to be any believers left on earth. It's just going to be that there's uh, there's so... you know that, that apostasy and rebellion has so ramped up that the, kingdom, you know, the people of God, His kingdom, are going to be a few. There's only going to be, like for example, um, there's only a few thousand men who hadn't bowed their knee to ball. right? Um, the kingdom of God isn't like, you know... Literally everybody It says the gate is uh, the Narrow is the way And few are those who find it um, Verses 9 through 17 um, We're talking about here The Pharisee and the tax collector right? Uh, the, tax co- or the Pharisee comes and says Hey, uh, I've done these many works I'm a good person I follow the law um, I go beyond the law um, I give extra of my tithes I'm not required to Um, I do this I do that look how perfect I am right and you can really see there that the Pharisee is kind of relying on his works to be justified Um, he's kind of the Pharisee is like look how much better I am than that heathen over there Uh, look how much look at me God accept me look how great I am and the tax collector though kind of it's kind of the exact opposite there he can't even it says he can't even look up to can't even look up to God <coughs> he keeps his, he keeps looking at the floor because he thinks he's, he's so unworthy you know the tax collector is just look how bad I am God just he can't even say you know anything else he just says God have mercy on me um, have mercy on me um, and' the, th- the thing about this is that it says later on that uh the Pharisee goes away not justified, but the tax collector does. Um, the collector, the tax collector, asks for God's mercy unworthily, and finds it. And the thing is, is that a uh, similar now used by the tax collector, "Have mercy on me," is rendered in First John two two. It's, propiti- it's propitiation. Jesus is a propitiation for our sins. He has mercy on us by His blood. And so that's kind of what I was talking about when I was saying there's a lot of there's a lot of applications, and it's very dense in these multiple parables. There's lots of lots of applications that you can draw out of this. There's lots of dense meaning. Okay. Yeah. Finally, um, so, I think the main point of this here passage is, uh, first off, what was Christ? I think we kind of have to ask ourselves, what was Christ's... Object here in telling us this parable. And I think the answer to that question would be, you know, that God is gracious to those who are. You know, God's not going to be gracious to those who say, "Hey, um, I've done everything right. Look at me. My works are great. Um, I'm much better than that guy over there. Um, look at me. I, you know, I go to church every Sunday. I tithe 15% of my income. I worship in the right way. I." Strictly follow the fourth commandment every Sunday, the Lord's Day. It's not going to be anything like that. It's those who realize and recognize that they're that tax collector, they're unworthy. All they really have a right to do is ask God, to be merciful to um, me. So, in verse 14, it says that, you know, again, like it says, it says, the tax collector went away justified, where the Pharisee was rejected, right? The Pharisee went away unjustified. Um,. I think this is a great thing. Do you think... I don't know. I'm to pose this question. In, uh, do you think this has any bearing on the doctrine of justification by faith alone?
1: Does
0: anybody kind of get that sense? I know I do. Right? kind of like a key thing on the topic of justification by faith alone. I, uh, I think I have it in Calvin's commentary here. It's great. I love technology, by the way. I can have thousands of books on this phone. <laughs> um, let's see. Verse. There we go. All right. Scrolling down. the uh-huh. All right. There we go.
3: Goodness. lots of scrolling to do still. Sorry, guys. <laughs> While you're scrolling there, yeah, um, go ahead. That one thing that that I thought about with this passage that, um, that sometimes I don't hear people bring out is that the the Pharisee um, didn't just say look at me, I'm great. But he even went so far as to give God credit for it. He says, I thank you, God, that I'm not like this tax collector. Um, and so, basically, I think, I think we, can, we can apply what Jesus is saying to even if someone says, um, well, it's only by God's grace that I'm so righteous, but it's still my righteousness that makes me acceptable to God. But it's all because of him, and therefore I can't take any credit. Even if you go that far, Jesus is still saying, no. Um, It is only the person who says, I don't have any righteousness, either that I've done on my own or that I've gotten by infused grace. I have no righteousness. I need an alien righteousness. Um, That's my only hope. Yeah. Perfect. I love
0: it. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. there we go. It says Calvin's commentary here says this man I'm justified. The comparison is not exact, for Christ does not merely assign to the publican a certain degree of superiority, as if righteousness had bel- uh, had belonged alike to both, but means that the publican was accepted by God, while the Pharisee was totally rejected. This passage shows plainly what is strict is what the strict meaning of the word justified. It means to stand before God as if we were righteous. Um, for it's said, it is not said that the publican was justified because he suddenly acquired some new quality, but that he obtained grace because his guilt was blotted out and his sins were washed away. Hence, it follows that righteousness consists in the forgiveness of sins. So, there—that's key on right there. All right. So now we're going to come to uh, the classic Presbyterian text, right? Verse fifteen. Uh, let the children come to me. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called to them, called to them, saying, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Alright. <laughs> so... I'm going to ask a question here, and we can talk about this now.
1: Um,
0: does anybody disagree? I mean, can we ask? I mean, I'm going to ask this question. Were the children saved, do you think? Um, I mean, there's not enough information. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Um, scripture tells us that, uh, well, first off, let's go. Jesus recognized, I think Jesus recognized these children belong to faithful, and believing parents. I mean, that's obvious, right? Um, If they were Jewish, they probably would have had the covenant signed, probably, circumcision. Um, So, I might might make a stretch here and say uh, since election is an invisible quality, and I mean, do you think it could be said that the kingdom of heaven truly belonged to those children? I think, I mean. Maybe. I mean, I think, uh, <laughs> maybe I'm making a stretch here, but I think it's definitely a kind of a covenant theology type of text, right? Where these children, were, they, they had the covenant sign. Christ accepted them. Um, they, were, they were children of faithful and believing parents. Um, I think that's kind of, you yeah, know, we can, we can kind of extrapolate that to, uh, you know,. To our, to our children, right? We bring our children to, to Christ, you know, with the knowledge that, you know, or it's not gonna, we're talking about presuming that they're all going to be saved because we're their parents and we're Christians, right? We're presuming, you know, we baptize them and we raise them up in the faith because we're commanded to. And, you know, that's kind of, I think that's kind of where we... Do you I'm get, of do you
2: get most of that from this text or
0: from other places? Um, mostly other places, too, though. Mostly. Yeah. Okay. Not just, not solely this text. Okay. (laughs) There's multiple places that speak of it, but this is just kind of one of the classic texts too that gets kind of thrown out there too. Um, I don't know. I'm I'm kind of interested in what other people think then.
4: I would say, what what is the age of these children? Do we know? There's a group of them. to such as he's saying, so these does that mean he's saying these children are justified? Well, I think the next verse to answer that because the emphasis of it is truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom like a child, he's using them as an, it's kind of an analogy or a metaphor. I would think that would be the main point of this passage to receive the kingdom like a child because this is following the humble tax collector who essentially realizes he's got nothing, he's just bringing debt and sin, and, you know, essentially children up to, you know, to you know, for a long time, most of their life, are helpless. Really dead, <laughs> so, they're, they're dependent, and that's just like the tax collector, he was dependent. All that other stuff, I've got to be honest, I, <laughs> no, <you're
0: kidding. laughs> I didn't mean to start a debate, I'm not going to do uh-huh. that so. <laughs> um, <laughs>
2: That's nothing wrong starting debates uh, baptize your babies, no, I'm
0: <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so uh, here we come into uh, the rich young ruler, verses 18 through 30 Right. Um, I know I'm kind of flying through it, kind of writing quick overviews and quick little snapshots, but um, so this here is, uh, the ruler asks him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he goes on and he says, hey, uh, I've kept all the commandments. Um, you know, I've done everything right. What, what, what else do I have to do? You know, Jesus hears this and says, oh, go ahead and sell everything you own. And then you can follow. me." Um, rich young ruler goes away pretty sad because he's like, oh, well, now I don't want to do that. Right? Excuse me. <clears throat> so the cool thing about this here is he says, you know, the rich young ruler calls Jesus good teacher, right? <coughs> I mean, kind of rereading it over and over and thinking about it, right? It doesn't really sound like the like the you know like the rich young ruler was being sincere there to me. You know, he's kind of trying to, hey Jesus, you're really awesome. Like you're pretty cool. You know, you're a great teacher. Kind of trying to weasel his way in there with some flattery and some, you know, some good you know, some high talk you know um, and then he goes in straight and says hey I'm perfect what do I need to do to follow you right kind of kind of baits the hook with some flattery and then kind of goes straight to the point there right um, and Jesus kind of Jesus kind of kind of knows what's coming he says why do you call me good you know, there's none good but God right now, Jesus isn't denying his goodness and saying he's not God or anything like that, so that's out the window, obviously. Um, I think Jesus is challenging the rich young ruler and saying, What is goodness? Um, true goodness is an attribute of God, right? Um, Again, it's kind of like that, that Augustine quote I said. You know, it's those who think too highly of themselves they their keeping of the law, right? They underestimate the law, how how stringent and how perfect that uh, how stringent and how perfect that law is, and how perfectly they're required to keep it, right? Because if you stumble on one point, you don't keep that point. Well, then all of it kind of it's kind of like a domino effect. Um, kinda that that strain, but they 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 overestimate their performance and underestimate the law. So I think kind of Jesus is kind of reiterating
2: that point there. Well Ryan Mm -hmm. though you know I mean I'm just saying about the Pharisee and the tax collector. Yeah. You know, Jesus sorta let him just sort of state his you know dependence on his self righteousness. You know, he gives God credit but he still thinks he's pretty good. And and this young man seems to think the same thing yeah you know and and i think in some ways they do have a high view of the law mm-hmm. they just think of it just in terms of external mm-hmm. requirements that they are to keep and what jesus is getting at is is that have you kept that law even to the very heart of your being you know yeah that it's something where that law has that impacted the way that you live your life or you just kept the Minimal requirements and stuff like that, and I think he he shows that uh, there's a there's a heart attitude that flows out of the keeping of the law as well, and which this young man doesn't obviously keep. So he hasn't really kept the law as well as what he yeah. he thinks he has. So I think he has a misunderstanding of that law, just like the Pharisee did, because the law sort of humbles us and shows us our inadequacy and and really that. The amount of our sin, I guess, you could yeah. say.
0: Yeah. Um, I don't know if you said it, but um I'm reminded and I can't I don't know who said it. I read it a while back. Um I think it might have been Luther, I'm not sure, but he said that you know, we as Christians, like you know, the law sends us to Christ to be justified. And Christ sends us back to the law to be sanctified. Kind of like a back and forth kind of thing. So we can continually. I mean, as you grow in sanctification, you'll see, man, I still failed. So where else can I improve on? And then as you kind of grow and more, it's kind of an ever, ever going thing. So,
1: yeah.
0: All right. Um, sell all. That's kind of the thing. He says, sell all your possessions. Right. Okay. Was he saying? You know, and then he says, he go, Christ goes on to say, you know, it's uh, after after the uh, rich anger goes away sad, right? Because he likes being rich. Um, he says, how you know, how much difficult is it? To, you know, how difficult is it for rich people to come, you know, enter the kingdom of God, right? Um, again, it's not saying that rich people can't be saved, right? It's not saying anything. You know, if you're rich, you're a bad person. You can sell everything, and then you'll be saved. Um, I think Jesus is kind of putting his finger right there on, you know, like what you were saying, right? He hasn't really kept all the law. He's kind of, you know, the external thing. Um, He really likes being rich. His idolatry is his money. He likes the status it gives him. And so that's why he says, oh man, um, I really don't want to, I really haven't understood, you know, I really like being rich. I don't want to give that up. I really like elevating myself. And so it kind of kind of really shows that he hasn't really kept the commandments. So. There we go. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Do you think wealth is automatically a sign of God's favor? I wouldn't say so. Um, again, it's kind of a... It's kind of one of the blessing things. Um, when it says, you know... Right there. uh on. I just had the thought. Um... Those who heard it said, "Then who can be saved?" Right after it says, you know, after Jesus says, uh, "How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God." Um, And then those who heard it said, "Who can be saved?" Right. So that's kind of again, I think that kind of flows into you know, some misunderstandings that you know, a lot of modern people have. Well, then, you know, rich people can't be saved, so you have to be, you, know, you have to give up all your riches, and then you can be saved. And it kind of leads to that same misunderstanding: who can be saved? Well, yeah, you know, leads to more works, that kind of more. Hey, you got to prove you're saved by giving up all the, you know, giving up the millions of dollars you have. Um, all right, let's see here. Uh, But here, I think it's also kind of profound. It says, and Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and age to come, or in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. now again, that's—I that's, don't think that's saying that you know we sacrifice so we can get better reward you know, later. You know, we deliberately sacrifice so and get better reward later. Um, I think it's uh, more when things when we have to give up things and God calls us to give up. We realize like one, they're already God's. And two, you know, again, we'll get greater rewards in heaven. You know, for our obedience to Him. Um. Let's see. Going on to uh, Jesus foretelling his death for a third time. Um, It says, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. After flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. So, um, again, Jesus predicts his, you know, Jesus predicts his death again for the third time. Um, but I think it's also interesting, though, that uh, Jesus plainly says that he's there to fulfill everything that's written about the Son of Man himself. He's, you know, it's it's not. Anything that he, you know, well, he could have called down legions of angels and said, so I'm done, guys, done, you know, but he didn't. You know, he was there to, it's, it's pretty, I think it's pretty awesome where it says, you know, it's kind of, I think you can kind of see that he was there to fulfill something that had been preordained from, you know, the foundation of the world, his sacrifice for his saints. Um, anybody else have any ideas about that? What does anybody else think? Alright So the final section of this chapter Is Jesus healing a blind beggar It says As he drew near to Jericho A blind man was sitting by the roadside begging And hearing a crowd going by He inquired what this meant And they told him Jesus of Nazareth is passing by And he cried out Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people when he saw it gave praise to God. Um... I kind of think this is kind of like another example of, kind of another example of the uh, similar example of the lepers that were healed, right? Except that this man immediately receives it. It's, you know, it's like right there. It's the same thing. The man immediately receives his sight by faith, and it's kind of another picture of you know, faith. Faith alone receiving your sight and being justified. So. Yeah.
2: I think it's interesting that in verse 37, Mm -hmm. it says they told him Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, Mm -hmm. and then when he cries out, he didn't say Jesus of Nazareth, he says Jesus son of David, Mm -hmm. which is the Messiah, would have to be the son of David. So it it makes you wonder if the blind man didn't see more clearly who Jesus was than even those that were in the crowd, and particularly the religious
0: leaders and stuff. yeah. And even the, and even saying that the, those who those those who are in front of him rebuke him and saying, Hey, be quiet. Yeah. Kind
2: shh, yeah, don't talk. Yeah. but he just cried out even louder. Yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> I mean it could also kind of be apple sometimes, you know.
2: Yeah. And it's interesting that what he cries out is, Have mercy on me. So that, yeah. you know, just sort of thinking about this chapter, it seems like there's a lot of pride in a lot of people. And but Christ said right. that all those that are proud would be humbled and that what's required is that dependence upon him like little children. And you see that sort of exemplified in this closing uh, account. You see that man having that sense of humility and seeking God for his mercy.
0: Definitely. I think it's also kind of interesting how in all these parables, it's like a very parable-filled couple of chapters, but it's also kind of like there's parables about humility and Contriteness. But there's also it goes on to you know, the, really contriteness, and then faith alone justifies, and then <clears throat> really It's kind of a kind of a repeating pattern. It's kind of like you know, didn't you get this the first time? Like, <laughs> you know? yeah. All righty. Sweet. Do
2: you want me close and pray? Yeah, sure. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I thank you for your word and <clears throat> Lord, it it is. Uh, so humbling to to come before you and to to see ourselves for really who we are because this is our temptation we oftentimes think way more highly of ourselves than we ought but I pray that your spirit would so work in our hearts to to help us to see the the true condition of who we are apart from you Lord may this uh, drive us to, to come in dependence to abide in you and to know you and to walk with you in humility Uh, Lord, we pray that you would cause us to grow in our faith, uh, seeing that the only righteousness that we have is in in you, but we pray that even in that righteousness that we would not boast or or brag, Uh, but Lord, that it would uh, give us uh, motivation to worship and to praise you. Uh, Lord, I thank you and pray that the things that have been taught today according to your word would stick in our minds this week and that we would meditate upon these things uh, we thank you for Ryan and his willingness to teach. We pray these things in your name. Amen. <coughs> Would you like <coughs> <Okay. laughs> the